Well, as we come to this passage, weird to start the, the sermon with a with a with a parenthesis that I wasn't planning for. But let me start by mentioning this. Perhaps I should have mentioned it last week in the introduction. Uh, even as I was reading this passage, I was wondering if, if I should mention it right at the start. The book of Amos is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the Word of God. It is not the easiest of books. It is a book that, excepting perhaps the, the last few verses in chapter 9, speaks of judgment. Very little can be gleaned in it of, of grace and mercy, excepting perhaps the last few verses. And the danger is, on the one hand, that we ignore such a book because its message doesn't please us. And on the other hand, the danger is that we, even if we come to a book like this, that we don't allow it to shine and to express what it expresses. The danger is that we water it down in some way, that we uh, make little case of the warnings that are present here. The warnings in Scripture are so important for us. It's not just the Old Testament. You come to Hebrews and it's full of warning passages that are meant to shock us into obedience and to consider our ways. In fact, that is the, the, the message of both of the Old and the New Testament, to look ourselves in the mirror of Scripture, to consider our ways and to, and to examine ourselves. And yes, perhaps most of these passages, as we go through the, this series, will be, uh, I learned this word, a word not long ago, and I seem to be repeating it time and time again, so dour, uh, nonetheless, it is against the dark, bleak backdrop of sin and judgment that Christ's light of grace shines more clearly. The Puritans used to be accused of, of being a spiritual hypochondriacs. I've heard some Christians complain that the, the, the Puritans were so difficult and so dour, they, all they saw was sin. But the reality is that they saw sin and they wanted to see sin, number one, because they wanted to uh, mortify the sins in their bodies. But secondly, because to see sin and then to look at Christ exalts the Lord up in His grace. When we realize the depravity and the, 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 the darkness that sin is, when we realize how angry God is and how fiery he, he burns against sin, this language of he, he is weighed down by the sin of his people, when we realize that and then we see the grace that is offered to us in Christ, it should cause, us our, it should cause our hearts to rejoice to those of us who have been cleansed by his blood. That is the first uh, thing before we come to the sermon. The second thing that I will say is, it is a longer passage. It is a long passage, perhaps the longest passage that I've preached in the four years that I've been your pastor. But the danger in considering smaller portions here is that we lose the forest because we're looking at the trees. And this larger portion is a forest that we need to consider. It is a, a part of a one address 
that the Amos, as the prophet of God, brings to the Israelites particularly. And this is a terrible thing in our own day. Amos is doing something here, and I'll mention it in a moment, but this is a terrible danger in our own day, a dangerous habit that some of us have. That uh, I, I thought of some clever way of expressing it, and you know, for me it was, we, we, we're sermon snackers. We, uh, a, uh, a, go, a feast is on offer for us, uh, a full multi-course meal is on offer for us, but we don't get through the, the appetizers. We eat just the, the little bit in the beginning and then we switch off and we, we tune out and we start thinking about other things in our life. Oh, I already took enough of me. Uh, I don't eat anymore. Our attention span is, is uh, the rough equivalent to the attention span of a, a goldfish. And we only listen to the first bit and then we, we, we lose interest. And if Amos had such people in the midst of, of, uh, of his congregation as he was preaching this sermon, if there were such people in Samaria or in Bethel, wherever the Amos preached this message, they would have left the, the, the congregation, they would have left that, that gathering feeling very happy about the sermon. Wow, what a preacher. This Amos guy is wonderful. Did you hear what he said about the nations? Perhaps you could hear as Amos begins this sermon and preaches it. As Amos starts these oracles one by one, perhaps you could hear in the crowd people shouting, Amen! Praise the Lord! Heads were nodding. He was preaching against the nations. Israel's sworn enemies are, uh, Amos is saying, are going to be the, the, the receivers of God's judgment. That would cause any Israelite's heart to rejoice. Oh, marvelous. The lion is roaring against them. The lion is roaring against them. The thundering clouds are, are, are gathering against the nations. What a wonderful message, Amos. Not just, perhaps not just Amos was wonderful in his message. Perhaps you could hear people in the crowd saying, oh, what a wonderful God, what a righteous, holy God, that he is coming to rain down justice upon the enemies, upon our enemies. Perhaps someone shouted from the crowd, Maranatha, O kind Lord, and rain down your vengeance upon them. They understood what Amos was saying for the most part in the sermon. The nations around them were wicked nations, heathen nations. And God is coming to judge them, all of them, no exception. None will be spared. Very much like today, isn't it? Where you can build a ministry on raining down judgment upon others on preaching to those outside, on addressing only the sins of others. Oh, you can build a ministry of that kind of preaching. If the pastor speaks against the sins of the charismatics, you hear amens. If, if the pastor makes a, a pointy comment against Muslims or Roman Catholics, you can see heads nodding in agreement. 
if he goes on to expose the inconsistencies of secular, godless thinking, you can, you can, you can see them agreeing with you. Oh, if he addresses wishy-washy, watered-down evangelicals, praise the Lord, how brave the pastor is. Perhaps even he addresses others within the congregation. Perhaps he speaks about the, the necessity for faithful attendance and those who are faithful in attendance buff up just a little bit. Oh, that's a good sermon. I like that. I, I love that. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's that thing that I've heard people say, not particularly in this congregation, but in other uh, situations, in other congregations. Oh, I hope really, that was a wonderful sermon, brother. I really hope that so-and-so was listening. Or perhaps too bad so-and-so wasn't here. He could have profited from that wonderful sermon. It's always wonderful when the sermon addresses someone else. Just like Amos was doing. But when the pastor, the preacher, starts addressing our own sins, now, now, now the pastor is meddling. How dare he be a bully in the pulpit and address me directly? He's meddling too much. How dare he single me out from the pulpit like that? This is the way that they felt. This is what's happening here. Amos begins this sermon with what, what is called a rhetorical device, a rhetorical technique meant to gather in the people, to capture their attention span, to cause them to draw certain conclusions that then are turned against them and they cannot say, oh, I don't like that. Well, they will say they don't like that, but they've already cornered themselves in. It's called a parabolic device. Our Lord Jesus was brilliant in the parables. Every single parable works like this. He teaches something that is meant to draw people in, to cause them to, to, to make certain uh, uh, conclusions, and then he turns it a parable, he, he turns it around, shines it on them, and they are left with no excuse because they've already passed that judgment on others, now they have to pass that judgment on themselves. It's that that is happening here. It's what Nathan did to David. He tells him the story of this rich man and this lamb. And David is very clear. Oh, that's, that's sinful. Well, that man is you, David. That's, the, that's what's happening here. That is a, that's what the Lord does in, 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 in all of his parables. The parable of, of the two sons. The one who went later, the one who went earlier, it was meant to cause a, a reaction on those listening. The parables, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan, it is meant to shine a light on them after they've drawn right conclusions in the story. That is what's happening here. These chapters, these two chapters have eight oracles. Six of them are addressed to the nations. To those around us, to those around this, let me say this, this, these eight oracles were all preached to Israel. This was not addressing those nations directly, but as Amos is about to address Israel and their sin, he begins by pointing this out. These eight oracles, these eight points, the first six are even nations. The seventh one, you might even assume uh, that some of the Israelites were very happy because it addressed Judah, the southern kingdom. Oh, and most Israelites, they hated the southern kingdom. 
They hated the Judahites. And this list is carefully constructed. You, as we'll see in a moment, is carefully constructed to draw them, to reel them in, to tighten the net around them, so that when it comes to the eighth oracle, they are left with no excuse. Because they already acknowledged that God was doing right in addressing sin, but now God turns on them and says, what about your sin? What about you? That is what's happening here. No doubt the people were very pleased at the beginning. No doubt they were very pleased to hear about condemnation coming. Perhaps they even were even willing to hear about judgment coming upon Judah. But then it turns upon them. It's as if, if Amos was preaching that sermon today for us. If Amos was addressing us with that same kind of sermon, Amos perhaps would have started with the with the the vile the ungodliness of Russia, the violence in the Middle East, the abuses of of the um, the Chinese communists, and we would all go, yes, amen. God is coming to judge Russia and the Middle Eastern. Uh, uh, um, violent abusers and, and he's coming to rain down judgment upon the Chinese communists. But then Amos, in a wonderful fell swoop, he turns to us and says, but this church also has violence. This church also has abuses. This church also has committed acts of ungodliness. That's what is happening here. And the first thing for us to note We'll note four things as we go through these two chapters. And again, I'm preaching the biggest portion of scripture that perhaps I've ever preached. Uh, but I, we're not going to look into detail uh, as much uh, at this point. Um, but the first thing to note from these two chapters is that God makes no, is a, an impartial God. God does not show any partiality, as the Apostle Paul says. He will judge both those who are heathens, unbelievers, unrepentant, pagans, and he will judge those who profess to be his people. Judgment comes upon all. God is not, uh, not a, a God that shows partiality in that way. On the one hand, this means that Israel does not have a, a privileged position as such, as if the, the position that they occupy in the plan of God, plan of redemption of God gives them a, 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 a get out of jail free card, uh, as if in the monarchy board. Israel doesn't have that. But on the other hand, this principle of impartiality also tells us that the pagan nations too, although they do not have the same privileges, they haven't received the, received the same revelation, and their judgment will be different. They will be judged on the, on the revelation that they've received. They, too, are not excusable. They are responsible for their own actions. I love how this commentator expressed this. Uh, he says that it is the crowning evidence that Amos is speaking about the Bible and the God of the whole Bible, the God of the whole Bible. It is the crowning evidence because he is judging all the nations. God is not simply uh, the judge of Israel or of Judah. God looks upon the whole world 
in the, in the whole created order and says, you are accountable to me. It doesn't matter which God you profess to follow, whether it is Baal or Ashtaroth or whatever God you believe you follow, you answer before me. That's what God is saying here. Doesn't matter which God you worship. You don't answer to him, he'll answer to me. And you will have to render an account of your sins before me. But also it reminds us that for the people of God, and we'll see that in a moment, judgment will be much more severe for the people of Israel because of what they have received. <coughs> judgment does not only come for the heathens, those who openly reject God's word, those who do not make a profession of faith, judgment comes upon all outside of God's grace, even if you profess to be a believer. And judgment, as it says in the New Testament, begins in the house of God. So there is a sense where this applies here as well to believers, to those underneath the grace of God. Our sins are still seen by God. As soon as we come to this passage, this is the, the second point. As soon as we come to this passage, uh, the question that is that we face is this. I've already said it in a sense. The, why are the nations accountable? Why is it that all these nations are accountable to God? They're pagan. They don't have the, the Old Testament. They don't have the, the, the Pentateuch. They don't have the law of Moses. To, to guide them. Why are they accountable? How can they be held responsible for failing to do those things that they do not know? And what, what we see is that they are not being judged according to the law of Moses. They are not being judged because they broke uh, this and that commandment in the, in, in the book of Leviticus. They're being judged for the things that they have received, for that inner conscience, that law that is written down in the hearts of men. They failed to do, not what they did not know, they failed to do the things that they knew and were required of them. The common denominator of all these articles, and we'll see some of these distinctions as well in a moment, but the common denominator of the first six uh, transgressions, of uh, the judgment uh, upon the, 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 the heathen nations, is that it is judgments that have to do with their relationships with one another. Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, uh, Ammon, Moab, all of them involve some kind of failure to protect the unprotected, to be merciful to fellow image bearers. Damascus is uh, condemned for, uh, for cruelty. Gaza is judged for enslaving and selling whole communities to Edom. It says here that Tyre broke the treaty of brotherhood, that Edom pursued his brotherhood with a sword, that Ammon murdered uh, pregnant women, that Moab desecrated the bones of Edom's king. These are not violations of the law of Moses. Although the law of Moses addresses these things, 
These are not violations of the law of Moses. These are violations of that, of that natural law that God has put in the heart of every single human being so that they become inexcusable before him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and 2. It is expected of every single human being on the part of God that we display mercy to one another. Whether they are friends or enemies, whether they are uh, uh, our countrymen or foreign, whether they are strangers or neighbors, members of our families or members of a distant nation, we are to have merciful behavior towards them. Another thing that is in common on all of them is that this is not the just the one sin. The language there that we see of for three transgressions of Edom and for four, uh, I will not turn away. Its punishment there is supplied. It's not there in the original, but it is a correct assessment. I will not turn away my wrath. I will not turn away their punishment, or I will not turn away my uh, roar from, from uh, out of Zion. That is the what is being said that reminds us that it wasn't just the one sin that they have committed. They have been committing sins time and time again, and God has been forbearing their sin. God has been patiently waiting on them to turn, giving them the opportunity to turn. The one sin, the fourth sin that is mentioned there is merely an illustration, or you might, you might say it's the straw I wouldn't say it in this way. It's the, the drop that makes the cup to overflow. Up until this point, the cup has been getting fuller and fuller, but the fourth transgression is the point where of no return. It's too late now. He will not relinquish. He will not turn away his punishment. But there are also interesting patterns here that help us to understand something of what's happening in these first six oracles, or in these first eight oracles, in fact, as we move to the third point. The first of all, and again, probably it would be much easier if we had a, a map. Sometimes you, you kind of wish you had a, uh, some multimedia help here, but I think we can all use our minds to visualize, is to consider the geography of this. Consider yourself to be an Israelite listening to a sermon that Amos is preaching. And it begins in Gilead, or it begins in Damascus, in Syria. The first nation that is mentioned, Syria, is situated to, let me try and get this from your perspective, Syria is situated to the northeast of Israel and Judah. But the second one, Philistia, is to the southwest. The the third one, um, the third one there, Tyre, is to the northwest, and Edom is to the southeast. You know, can you see what Amos, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is doing? He's drawing a net around Israel and, and, and Judah, and then you have Moab and Ammon. They, they are there as well, one to the north and one to the south. It's as if every, the, the, the judgment is encircling Israel and Judah. It's as if, if someone was actually paying attention to the sermon and, and considering these things, they would have started becoming very uneasy because they could see the judgment of God jumping over Israel. 
then he goes, oof, you eat this kid. And then he jumps over again. And then he jumps over again and again and again. And then he comes to the seventh, a very important number for the for the Jews and the seven nations we judged, they thought the completion of Babylon, oh, okay, it's, it's Judah. It's not us Israelites. But then eighth judgment comes and it's upon us Israelites. That is an important thing to note. Another important, perhaps even more important than this mere curiosity is to note that the six nations uh, that God chooses to give to Amos to, to preach again, and what did he says about them. Each of the, con, the condemnations is basic human rights violations, and it, it's in, in pairs of two. So you can see the first group. It's, uh, it's uh, Damascus and Gaza. It's Syria and the Philistines, and uh, represented by, by those cities. And the sin uh, that they commit is cruelty against against others for three sins at Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, he says, my punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of fire. We won't go into all the details of these uh, situations, but, but this represents the, the, the brutality of war, of, of threshing through them. And then you have the, the second pair, you have the second pair there that, that speaks of slavery. And then you have the third pair. The third pair is an interesting one. Let me just quickly mention this. What, and, and the sins seem to be growing and growing in, in severeness. In this third uh, pair, you see that it is the sin of killing pregnant women and, and this desecrating the body of someone who had died. It's as if for God, that is an, an exceedingly grave sin, and it is. Because killing the, the, the unborn, I will, I will refrain at this moment from, from going on an aside about abortion, but I think you all can understand as well this. Uh, but killing the unborn uh, jeopardizes the future, and desecrating the body of the dead uh, desecrates the past. And we as Christians, we as the people of God, we need to be uh, respectful of our past and mindful of our future. But then we come to the seventh one. We come to God's people. Third point, and these two points, I'll try to be a little bit quicker. Again, preaching through two chapters is not the easiest. But in these two points, I'll try to be, because now, instead of surrounding, now, then, the scope of God's weapon zeroes in on God's people. And now the agreement, if they are still paying attention, all of those amends and all of those laws start to fade away. Beginning, first of all, with Judah. Some of the Israelites might have been very happy to hear this. Maybe some others weren't so happy. They felt slightly sad uh, about their brethren. But it's worth to consider what the sin of Judah was. Look how it expresses it there. The sin of Judah is the sin of breaking God's law. They despised the law of the Lord. They did not want the law of the Lord. They despised it. And the question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we reject the law of God? Do we despise it? 
Oh, we, I know we can sing about it, just like we sang about how I love your law, O oh God, just now. But do we really love the law, the law of God? Or are we like those who only love the things in the law of God that, that tickle our fancies? We're all guilty of this, by the way, brothers and sisters. And if you say you're not, you're lying to yourself. We're all guilty of this. Because when the law of God, when the word of God starts to poke at us in the places where it's uncomfortable, the first thing that, that comes to our mind is, is it really what it says there? No, I wish I could maybe get the, the Hebrew uh, behind it. Huh? Maybe there's something about the context. It's, it's for, for that time, not for now. That's how we act with the word of God. That's our first instinct when he, he comes to us. Someone said very cleverly and very rightly, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And how many, how many have rejected the, the word of God? Because they could not do away with the one pet sin that they have. How many have played by, with the word of God like Satan played with it in the garden with Eve? How do we say that? Today, that's what happens in, in many circles. And I haven't said that you can build a ministry in criticizing others. I almost want to reflect. But that's what happens in many Christian circles about the, the whole uh, sexuality issue. They play around with it. I can't really, really say this. This is more for that time. But the reality is we do that in other places. The question is, are we doing that right now with some of our sins? Just justifying that, that one pet sin that we love to, to, to hold and is still in our lives. But the, there is another element in Judah's judgment, not just that they uh, reject and despise the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, is that their lives led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. That's another step. It, it's as if Amos is not speaking of many sins, but it's, it's a, a compounding of sin. Because they don't love the law, the law of God, they will follow after lies. Here are some translators, and I believe they, they are mostly correct. They, they, they translated this as idolatry. They, they, some commentators mentioned that this is language of idolatry. They, their lies lead them astray. They, they went to follow after other gods, just like their fathers followed. That is the lies that is a, a synonym for idols. And that's the second step. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, if the word of God doesn't occupy the supreme place in our hearts, if we take the word of God from there, something else occupies its place. If God doesn't occupy the supreme uh, overruling place in our heart, something else will take its place. I think it, it is a, uh, the, what usually uh, physics uh, teachers say that nature abhors a vacuum, that unless it's in space, where, which apparently is a vacuum. Um, but in, in nature, in this world, nature abhors a vacuum. Never, nothing ever exists in a complete vacuum because something will always occupy its place. And it's the same thing with our hearts. It's the same thing uh, uh, to do with the, the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is not the sole authority in our life, something else will be. Whether it is uh, what this or that other preacher says, whether it is what uh, what some other book says, whether it is some other uh, 
the world today. It would be some what other celebrities become almost deities in the minds of, of the of the unbelieving world. Something always occupies that space. Brothers and sisters, whatever whatever goodwill Amos still had by this point in time, as we get to this final judgment in this sermon on Israel, whatever goodwill he still commanded on the part of his hearers, I promise you that by this point we have very little as he comes to the conclusion. Are you happy that God is judging sin? Let's talk about your sin, he said. Let's talk about your sin. The scope zeroes in on the audience. Are you happy that God is a holy and righteous judge that is going to rain down judgment upon all these nations? Well, that same holy and righteous judge hasn't been uh, ignoring your sin. He knows of it. And that's where Amos comes to describe their sin. And again, these are uh, illustrative sins, conceptual sins. They are meant to portray the, the depravity that had happened. Certainly there were more sins involved in the life and of the nation, but this one is, is as if a placeholder for all the sin. And the, the underlying behind it, it is the complete refusal of God uh, in, the, in the life of the nation. It concerns Israel's morality and it concerns the, how they have rejected the word of God. He says, because you have sold, you sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Precisely like the heathen were doing. They were so happy that God was judging the heathens because they, God was seeing how they oppressed the poor and the needy. But that's exactly what you're doing, Israel. You're oppressing the needy. Whether for a lot of money like silver or for just a pair of sandals. That's exactly what you're doing. You're using the poor and the needy for your own selfish ends. You're living for your own self. That's exactly what you're doing. And there are a number of sins here in a sense. But they are all examples and they all build this composite picture. Economic oppression for small gains or for large gains doesn't matter. The second sin that we see is denying uh, justice. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man, they they do little. They they they, they do not give justice to, to the to the poor and oppressed. There is also immorality. A man and his father go into the same girl. And, and here you might say, okay, it's the sin of sexual immorality, but it goes further. Because if you continue reading, you realize that it's more than just that. It is, uh, it is uh, idolatrous in nature. It's cultic uh, uh, prostitution that is being spoken of here. Because they defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar of clothes sticking to the flesh. It's, they are great. They are, you know, in ancient times. Unfortunately, that has ended, but there was what was called cultic prostitution. Up until the days of our Lord, up until the days of Paul in Ephesus, this was still happening. And this is what is being spoken here. But even goes further. It's not that just that they're desecrating the, the altars and, and, and the holy name of God. They are doing so even as they are using oppressive uh, uh, things. 
they lay on, on altar, uh, on, on every altar on clothes taken in pleasure. Remember in the Old Testament, right? If you don't, I'll be quick in, in emphasizing it. That uh, for the poor people, you could take their clothes, uh, their clothes in the pledge. If they, but by the end of the day, before nightfall, you had to return it because a poor person could not uh, could not uh, be called. That that was part of the gracious, merciful aspect, social aspect of the law. It, there is this concern about the poor and the needy. So if you take their clothes on a pledge, you have to return them by the end of the day. But here it's as if they didn't. Here they are. Not only that, they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. The, the wine of the condemned, what probably what, what is today fines paid by those who were condemned in the courts of law. You have to pay a fine and in days without money as we have it today, those fines could be paid in kind. And one of them would be wine. It's the wine of the condemned. And as we'll see, this, these condemned ones are not uh, righteously condemned people, people who, who, that justice demanded that they would be condemned. The, the condemned that, that concerns uh, Amos and God here is the unjustly convicted, the ones that were condemned because the rich people could bribe the, the judges and the judges would, would enact the, uh, would uh, pass uh, unrighteous judgments. That is what is being spoken of here. The point being, it's the darkest picture that you can paint Amos is painting of them. There's no darker picture in, in Amos's words. This is as low as it comes. You think that uh, Gaza, and you think that, that Tyre are wicked. You, you were so happy about that. Look at what you're doing. When we put it like this, almost anyone can realize how bad things were. Perhaps even worse. And perhaps we are inclined to preach it, uh, to, to say with, with uh, the Samaritans and, and with the Bethlehemites uh, in Amos's day, amen, preach it, brethren. But the point is, for us at least, are we, are we guilty of the same things? Because this first great sermon, and I conclude, uh, brothers, this first great sermon of Amos in this wonderful prophecy is to show that the people of God are guilty and judgment is coming and must come. But even as he does this, he zings them just one more time. He says, wasn't I the one who destroyed? Wasn't I the one who performed all these great acts of mercy and wonders in your presence? And yet, and yet, when I sent prophets to you, when you started to, to turn away, you told them not to prophesy. There, it was too hard for you. And even now, Amos is there preaching to them. And God says to them, Behold, I am weighed down by you, as a car full of sheaves is weighed down. What a picture. For God to be weighed down with, the with his own people. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous, of, the, the most courageous man of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. This is not hyperbole. This is, uh, this is not hyperbole. 
This is this is simple truth. Perhaps it is even an understatement at that. God sees sin. God's wrath is kindled against sin, and God is coming to judge sin. Brothers and sisters, for us it's very simple. You might you may profess to be a Christian. You may say, I am the Lord's. But it would be foolish of any preacher in coming to a concert like this to assume that everyone in the audience is. I hope you are. I pray that you are. The question is, what if you're not? Well, I'll speak to you. Make sure you are. Because you know you can fool your brother and your sister in the church. You can fool your husband and your wife at home people, perhaps. You can fool everyone around you with your white painted outside. But yet on the inside you're rotten to you to the core. But you know. If nothing else, this passage teaches us that you cannot fool God. He knows the hidden evils of your heart. He knows where you stand. He knows where you are. He knows the things that go on on the inside. He knows you freely. You trust in him and you have come to him in faith and repentance. On the outside you may fool everyone, but on the inside you cannot fool God. There are many that say, oh, I love God. And then John says, well, but if you say, I love God, and, and, and in your inner, in your inward, you, you, you hate your brother, you're a liar. This passage is a passage for us to consider our ways. It is a passage for us to start being more obedient to God's word. For us to live up to the standard that God has given us. But then you ask, how can someone live to that standard? The answer is, we can't. We truly can't. In and of ourselves, we are frail and weak. We cannot live to that standard. But praise be to God, because it is the God who drove the Amorites out. It is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. It is the God who sent his son to live and die for our sins. And in, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Yes, we are weak, but, for him, but we entrust ourselves to him. We don't rest upon his mercy. We seek to be holier. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And for everything else, for all of our failures, we confess them because we know that we have an advocate before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a sympathizing high priest. But let's not turn, because that is the danger for all of us who, who know the gospel in and out, who can preach the gospel uh, to, to an unbeliever, who can tell them the fact. The danger is, is that we turn the freedom that the gospel brings us into licentious living, into excusing our sins away, saying, oh, I've been washed clean in the blood of Christ, so I can carry on sinning. And Paul says, by no means, by no means. But for us, if the Lord has convicted us of sin, whether it's for the first time in our lives or 
the millions comes for some of us. We go to him because he is able to save you to the uttermost. But make no mistake, judgment is coming. Hell is real. And if you die in your sins, it is hell that awaits you. And who can withstand to drink from the cup of God's wrath? Christ could. Christ can and Christ did. On that cross he drank to the dregs that cup. Now you need to turn to him, to flee to him. And that's what I beseech you to do. Whether you, for the first time, or for the millionth time. Because we do sin. Do not trust or rely on the profession of faith that you've made. Do not try and rely or rest on the fact that I go to church, I, 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 I obey the word of God uh, in this and that. Don't rely on past privileges of what God has done in your life. Go to him because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that, that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Go to him. To him today, not tomorrow. Because you're not, you're not guaranteed the tomorrow. And the Lord's forbearance is wonderful and amazing. But it does run out. And there will come a day, if you're still in your sins, where you'll hear the Lord say to you, For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away this punishment. But there will come a day, there will come a time. And this will happen. But will you come today? Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Entrust yourself to Him yet again to enter into the heart of His salvation while there is still time. Though you have long rejected Him, will you come? Because whosoever will come, the Lord says that you will, you will be able to take of the water of life freely. May God help you to come. May God make you to come.